Hi, I'm James Rodier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. And just as one additional reminder, the articles we discuss here are almost always freely available, so there's no paywall or login required. You can just download the article. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Edmonds, a professor of biology at California State University at Northridge. He's going to talk to us about the effects of ocean acidification on coral reefs. And in particular, he's going to explain the need to look at coral reefs at broader scales than a lot of research has in the past. That means looking at it as a population or a community or an ecosystem rather than just a single species. So let's get straight to the interview. Dr. Edmonds, thank you very much for being here today. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. This is an exciting opportunity for me. Thank you. Um, so I was hoping you could give us a little bit of background um, just on ocean acidification in general. Sort of what is that problem and, and when was it recognized? Well, ocean acidification is a, a product of rising atmospheric carbon dioxide levels that is causing the oceans to decline in pH, which is pushing them a little bit more towards an acidic condition. And that rising carbon dioxide is a result of, of human events, and it has a, a wide spectrum of, of consequences in the ocean, largely related to the ease with which animals can calcify. And the process has been going on in all likelihood since the end of, since the start of the, the Industrial Revolution, and really started to garner attention around about 2000. Okay, so this is uh, a situation that mirrors, at least in its scope and range of time, uh, something like global warming. Yes, very much so. I mean, global warming is driven by the same primary event, rising atmospheric CO2. And I think for a long time, folks were, were, were very much aware of, of how rapidly and how quickly the world was warming and the the acidification consequences, I think, sort of escaped everybody's attention for, for some time. And then it, it caught up with everybody. It's like, oh, my goodness, there's a, a second consequence of this, this trend for atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. And, and what drew people's attention to the trend around the year 2000? I think it was really close attention to what experts in the field were saying and what the preliminary results were indicating. And like most scientists, you, you keep your ear to the ground, you read journals and you go to conferences and you see things that are, are described. And, and some of them are just little blips on the radar and somebody else doing a nice little piece of science somewhere. And other things are, oh my goodness, I really need to sit up and start paying attention to this. I, I believe the science, I believe the interpretation, and this is, this is serious. And I think that's really what, what caught my attention and the attention of, of my colleagues. It was suddenly it became too, too pronounced to really ignore and the fledgling evidence was, was really very disturbing. Okay, and what species does it affect primarily? Broadly speaking, it, it affects every single animal and plant in the ocean that um, deposits calcium carbonate. And that's where the, the, the highest profile signal is recorded, but it also has other consequences for physiological processes of, of, of most organisms. But it certainly is that the calcification side of the equation that has garnered the most attention. And, and how has that been studied traditionally? Um, 
calcification, it, 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 it's evident in, in many different ways. It's the, the deposition of, of limestone, which is not the, the true mineral involved, but broadly speaking, it's the deposition of limestone, and limestone causes a variety of things to happen. It's the increase in weight of animals and plants, it's the increase in sizes of animals and plants, and it's the spectacular shells and, and containers in which animals occur, and animals and plants occur. And it's, it's changes in those properties that are usually measured, how, how quickly these organisms lay down the, the calcium carbonate, the shape in which they deposit it, and the extent, linear extent, to which they grow. Okay, and are we talking primarily here about corals, or are we, or are we also talking about other animals? We're talking about everything that lays down a calcium carbonate skeleton. So we're talking about crabs, we're talking about, about mollusks, we're talking about corals, um, anything that deposits, deposits calcium carbonate. But arguably, I think tropical reef corals are, are among the most important because the skeletons that they deposit have this vast array of emergent properties in terms of providing habitat in which other organisms live and providing features that have a large array of emergent properties affecting tropical ecosystems and influencing the human populations live on them and near them and a myriad of, of animals and plants as well. And speaking of those species, you mentioned in your article that they're largely studied in isolation. And I'm wondering, is work like that often conducted in the laboratory? Well, the field... The, the aspect of biology that focuses on ocean acidification, it really has only been defined in the last about 16 years. And like many studies or any branches of biology, it starts out with a certain kind of straightforward investigation and the straightforward investigation turns into more elaborate investigations, more elaborate investigations grow further and you, you learn more about the biology of the system. And reflecting that trend, analyses of coral biology and their response to ocean acidification have started out largely with taking a coral, putting it in some kind of a, a tank or a container that can be modified for the amount of carbon dioxide present and measuring a response. And that was really where some of the first signals of, of, of problems were recorded. But those, those kinds of experiments have limitations in terms of oh my goodness, that's not like the real world. We need to nudge those experiments towards a real world scenario. And that, that reflects what has happened, what continues to happen as this sort of area of investigation extends. And just out of curiosity, because I think our listeners might wonder, is the mechanism by which uh, calcification is slowed by the additional acidification, is that well known? It's remarkably complex. Um, it's it's tempting to think of it, oh my goodness, it's just calcium ions and carbonate in the ocean just depositing like, like a mineral rain falling from the ocean. And that's sort of a woefully inadequate explanation of what is going on. Um, and biologists have struggled to really understand how how relatively simple invertebrate tissue takes 
the minerals and seawater and produce such a, a glorious structure as the three-dimensional coral skeleton. And there really have been tremendous advances in understanding that. And it's a wonderful exercise of, of how far you can go using contemporary tools from a variety of disciplines to understand the process. But the, the fundamental process is a, a wonderful um, story of, of protons and ions being transported across membranes and, and the chemical conditions of the water being modified close to the skeleton to result in calcium carbonate being deposited. But I, I think we have a long way to go before we, we truly understand the chemistry of those events and the biology of those events. Okay, that makes sense. So the mechanism precisely may not be well understood yet. But going back to the uh, the single species studies, that seems like obviously the right place to start or the only place to start. But what sort of studies should be expanded into from that? Well, arguably what it is that we're trying to do is to understand the potential for whole coral reef ecosystems to persist in a future on a time scale of one or two centuries. And those ecosystems are, are phenomenally diverse and complex. And the, the, the classic parallel is coral reefs are the rainforests of the ocean. They're that diverse and that spectacular. And the place to start is take a single coral species out of its element and put it in a highly controlled environment that many of us might have in our home. It would be your home aquarium where you regulate the conditions as much as you can and you understand how it works. And that gives you a tremendous understanding of, of basic biology, but it is so far from, from, from a coral reef in terms of of wave stress, in terms of animals swimming around, in terms of corals being nibbled by fish, in terms of invertebrates running around, whether the, the coral eats a, a, a planktonic organism today or whether it ate one yesterday. And the, the struggle is, is nudging those experiments from a coral in a very artificial environment to a coral an environment has elements of a of a relevant wave environment a relevant light regime a relevant temperature regime to a coral that then has its buddies all around it and so that's what we're trying to do is add progressively the layers of complexity back it's like starting with the the barest resemblance of an onion and instead of peeling back the layers of the onion we're progressively adding those layers back onto the onion Okay, and that leads obviously to a next question, which is what's the next layer of the onion that you add back? Um, you know, you've done these studies with single species of coral. Is the next move to add wave stress or other coral species? You know, where do you go? Well, interestingly, I, I think, you know, arguably the next step is to, to begin to look at the, the complexities of a single coral alone. And often what people have done is to look at a fragment of a coral that is easy to work with. You take a single branch of a coral and you look at how that branch functions. And I think the next step is actually to recognize that, oh my goodness, it's not a single branch. It's a whole group of branches 
in a single coral colony where that colony has emergent properties. So the next step, I think, is to understand how one branch starts to operate together with a group of branches in a colony that has emergent properties. And then beyond that, the next step is to understand how that colony interacts in the, the complex physical and chemical world around it, that, that increasing carbon dioxide concentrations in the ocean are happening in concert with rising temperature, and they're happening in concert with seasonality, and they're happening in concert with, with sedimentation driven by rainfall. So you then add in elements of physical complexity, and then I think you take the, the grandest challenge of them all of beginning to add other coral species and other organisms into the equation. But that is certainly the grandest challenge. Okay. And you mentioned the emergent properties that corals have when you look at them in aggregation. And I was hoping you could describe for us, you know, what that term means in this context, because I'm not sure all of our listeners are going to have a good grasp on it. Well, it's, it's like looking, it's the difference between a single tree and a forest. You might look at a meadow filled with grass and right in the middle of that meadow will be one beautiful tree. And then you contrast that with an intense forest with trees neck to neck with each other, with animals running through that forest and all the properties of of flickering light passing through the leafy canopy of, of changes in temperature on the outside of the forest and deep in the heart in the forest. And you see exactly the same things with a coral branch. You take one coral branch and you stick it next to another coral branch and you've got shade between those branches. You add another set of branches to that and you have shade between the branches. You have the flow of seawater around that coral colony and the flow is strong at the edge of that coral colony and it's it's much reduced in the center of that coral colony and you've got planktonic animals wafting through the water, hitting the polyps on the edge of that coral colony, and they get to feed very well. And then the polyps in the center of the coral colony, they get less food because their their buddies at the edge of that coral colony have eaten a lot of the food at, at the outside before it ever gets into the center. So I think that's what we mean by emergent properties, just like you can't understand how you can't understand one tree and then say, oh, my goodness, well, there was one tree. Here's 100 trees. I just take one tree and multiply it by 100 and get the answer. You can't do the same thing with a coral. You can't take knowledge of one branch and just multiply it by a 1,000 and understand how a 1,000 branches all work together. There are emergent properties that result in the whole being much more than just the sum of the parts. I was wondering if you could describe how ocean acidification may uh, interact with climate change. And it wasn't a major focus of the article, but I think it's an interesting question, and I, I think it's something that will be on people's minds. Well, it's a very interesting question, and, and the, the notion of how our world is changing clearly has many facets of, of biology and politics and, and financial implications. And the basic principle is that human civilization has and continues to generate carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere. And that has a number of implications. One of them is what we generically describe as as global climate change, that is the world getting hotter and the hotter world has multiple implications of 
the world getting hotter, but also that patterns of rainfall change and patterns of seasonality change. And that collectively has been described as, as global climate change. And that is happening at the same time as the carbon dioxide, which is the primary cause of climate change, is dissolving in the ocean. And arguably, ocean acidification is like the climate of the ocean. So the climate of the world is changing and the climate of the ocean is changing. And that climate of the ocean is, is effectively described by this process of acidification. So they, they go hand in hand. And I think for a variety of scientific and, and sort of political reasons and, and other consequences, it tends to be sort of split in these two notions. You've got climate change, and we've got ocean acidification, but they're really driven by exactly the same process. And so by default, they're going hand in hand. Okay. And just to give us some idea of the scope of the situation of the problem, um, is ocean acidification something that has the potential to affect every reef in the world, or do we expect some of them to be relatively unscathed? What's the level of problem that we're looking at here? Well, certainly the most dire predictions would suggest that the chemistry of the oceans will change to such a point that it is impossible for a stony coral to deposit enough limestone, enough calcium carbonate to remain as a stony coral. And as a result, it'll turn into a soft, fleshy part, just like a sea anemone on uh, a shoreline. And that's the most dire prediction. And yes, I, I, I think that is, that is a possibility. And what we don't know is whether there are some corals out there that are able to resist that intense change or whether there are certain genotypes of corals that can resist that intense change or to what extent they can thrive. We just don't know. But certainly the, the most dire prediction is, oh my goodness, stony corals will disappear. Um, and I, I would like to hope that is not, not reality. I'm an optimist. And one thing I was hoping we could talk just a little bit about before we close is the assembly of authors that you have on this article. You know, how did you all come together? Well, that manuscript originated from a scientific retreat um, at Santa Catalina Island off the shore of California, where we were able to assemble a group of about, um, I believe it's like 16 or 18 people, all of whom are experts in the field, and we were able to, to have a four-day intense period of discussion about the challenges that we face in understanding ocean acidification. And the grand challenge we sought to tackle was how on earth do we add the pieces together to understand the emergent properties? And that discussion was incredibly insightful. It identified what we should be doing. It identified the challenges of getting there and identified means that we might exploit to get there. And, and that's, that's what gave rise to, to the manuscript. The manuscript sort of articulates what we see as a template, as a way to move ahead. It, it, it describes what can be done and hopefully it identifies some of the, the challenges to get there. And certainly we don't have all the answers. And I, I, I think one of the things we learned was 
oh my goodness, there's some seriously difficult things we still need to accomplish. And that leads into one last topic, I think. It's sort of the billion-dollar question. What would you do if you were studying this problem or working on this problem and you had more or less unlimited funds and unlimited resources, um, you know, be those you know, human and financial and otherwise, what would you be looking at? What, what sort of experimentation would you engage in? Well, I think, I think the kind of experimentation that we need is, is right across the spectrum. In the sense, at one end, we need to be doing elegant and sophisticated experiments that work with whole areas of reef to understand how a whole reef corresponds to or responds to changing carbon dioxide level, the grandest challenge of them all, that we, we have changes in carbon dioxide concentrations and we, under, we, we carry out experiments to understand how a coral living next to a sponge with algae growing next to it and with crabs running around and with mollusks living there, how that ecosystem responds. I think we need to do those kinds of experiments and that requires very sophisticated biology, it requires sophisticated engineering, it requires sophisticated theory. But at the other end of the experimental experimental range, I think we also need to engage in a program of carrying out relatively simple experiments across a large array of, of individual organisms. And Stony corals are a wonderful group of organisms that are exceptionally diverse in the order of, of 600 or more species in tropical areas alone. And the number of those species we actually have studied is, is incredibly small. Probably you could count them on, on two hands. And so that leaves a tremendous array of organisms. We really need to understand how a large number of species will respond to a broadly the same set of conditions. So I, I think we would need to take the resources and tackle both ends and you fill the middle up with some really talented people who understand theory that can stitch these pieces together to to focus on these emergent properties. And let's hope that work is underway soon. Dr. Edmonds, thank you very much for joining me. It was a pleasure. The opportunity is entirely my pleasure. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.